0: Hi, I'm Brent Stafford, and welcome to another edition of RegWatch on GFN.tv. While well, it's official, we are now just weeks away from the start of the 2023 Global Forum on Nicotine in Warsaw, Poland. RegWatch will, of course, be there, as will our next guest. Joining us today is David McIntosh, Director of Operations for Knowledge Action Change, the organization responsible for the Global Forum on Nicotine. David is a longtime campaigner for drug policy and treatment in the UK, where he served as the chair of trustees for Drug and Alcohol Services London, a.k.a. Dazzle. David, it's great to have you back on the show.
1: Thanks for having me, Brent.
0: Well, I have to say you quickly became one of our favorite guests when you uh, gave Watch an exclusive impromptu tour of the Roman ruins underneath the city of London. Let's take a quick look.
1: Here it is, the amphitheatre, that they accidentally discovered really, back in 1988, when they were building the foundations for the art gallery which is above. So obviously that's not the ideal uh, thing you want to find when you're looking at a a new prestige building. So this is actually Roman? This is Roman. Uh, The deal that was made was that this was made open to the public and preserved, and that allowed uh, agreement for the art gallery above to go ahead.
0: David, that really was quite amazing, and I think it says something about your position in London to have that kind of access to such a special place. How are you so wired in?
1: Well, I I did work at the City of London for 19 years, um, and I was based in the Guildhall. Um, so yeah, it was a a great place to work in many respects, not least that we had those Roman ruins and, uh, as something of a frustrated tour guide, I was always happy to take the opportunity to show people around.
0: Let's talk a bit about your experience in drug policy and treatment. I know that it's traversed a lot of levels. Tell us about that.
1: Yeah, so um, I started off um, working at a national level uh, in uh, the Cabinet Office in the UK Anti Drug Coordination Unit at the end of the nineteen nineties, uh, and after a few years, a few years there, I went to work at the London Drug and Alcohol Policy Forum, which was based at the Guildhall, uh, where we met, and yes, um, that involved me working with drugs and alcohol uh, issues across the piece, from law enforcement to treatment, um, young people, education, the, the the whole shebang.
0: So what brought you into tobacco harm reduction?
1: Well, actually, it was my involvement uh, with Dazzle uh, and the chief executive of Dazzle um, persuaded me that we should bid for some uh, funding to undertake some smoking cessation work. Uh, and I have to admit, I was very sceptical at the time. wasn't really sure it is what we should be doing, where our focus was at. You know, we did drugs and we did alcohol services. Um, but I was persuaded. Uh, uh, and actually, I, I'm very pleased that I was persuaded because it, it actually um, gave me a, an insight into uh, a much neglected area. The, the UK was on a fairly good track in terms of Um, Smoking prevalence at a population level dropping. But, you know, there were pockets and there still are pockets um, where smoking rates are fantastically high. So, I mean, if we think, you know, UK prevalence rate is between 13 and 14% for the adult population, there are some populations where the smoking rate is 60, 70, 80% or higher. And drug users and people who have got serious alcohol problems are one of those communities where you see very, very high prevalence rates. So the immediate feedback from the people who were benefiting from the smoking cessation work, which did include switching, um, was you know, it was was very powerful. Um, You know, people telling me how they felt good about themselves, how, you know, their flat smelt better, their children were saying they smelt better. You know, very human stuff, but with, you know... um, a great power, you know, and very important for people who, you know, have, have had some major challenges to overcome.
0: Now, those that are having problems with drugs, alcohol, maybe homeless too as well. They're by definition, really a majorly vulnerable group, right?
1: Sure. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, and a lot of these populations overlap. There's lots of people who are sleeping rough on the streets will have drug or alcohol problems, um, you know, and, you It's not a surprise that we see the highest smoking rates in these groups. Um, I guess what we don't see is services being particularly well targeted at these groups in in terms of their smoking. Do you see a lot
0: of people who are well-off or middle-class professionals smoking in the UK?
1: No, Um, I mean, we have, again, some statistics from uh, our office of national statistics. Um, I think with people who have achieved uh, a university degree or higher, we have less than six or about six and a half percent smoking prevalence rate in that group. If you look at people who leave school without any qualifications, it's just under 30%. Um, You know, it is quite unusual to see people in, you know, the the leafier, greener suburbs of London, it's quite remarkable, actually, if you see someone walking along smoking now. Um, it's not the same I- I in the more economically um, deprived areas. You will still regularly see people smoking.
0: Now, those areas, do you think they've become a bit invisible? The smokers become invisible?
1: There is a bit of a visibility issue there. I think it's actually probably quite a a good expression. Um, Again, those areas often have many challenges. And I think the issue around smoking is one of those that's often somewhat neglected. These would often be areas where the local authorities and agencies would be hardest pressed to come up with cash to fund services. And I'm afraid smoking uh, cessation or switching services have often been, you know, cut in areas where there's been a a shortage of money. So, yeah, I, I think there's been a lack of focus for sure.
0: David coming up this June 23rd at the global forum on nicotine 2023 There's a panel discussion that you're hosting titled inequality of access. How do we achieve a level playing field? This is in regard to increasing access to safer nicotine products. In your mind, what are the biggest challenges to accessing these products, specifically to vulnerable populations?
1: Well, I I think one of the things I'm looking forward to in the panel is that we're gonna undoubtedly be touching on some of the issues we've spoken about, um, you know, homeless populations, people in contact with the criminal justice system, uh, people in prisons, another area where we have very high smoking rates. But we've also, if you like, got a a global issue. You know, there's 80% of the world's smokers live in lower and middle income countries. Now, a lot of those countries don't have well-developed smoking cessation services. A lot of those countries have very poor access the safer nicotine products as well so i mean there's i think there is an issue that um you know while there are challenges uh around accessing safer nicotine products in a lot of the developed world compared to the issues of trying to access those any kind of safer product in some of the developing world that that's that's a huge problem and you can kind of see that, that's that's going to mimic what we were just talking about you know you're going to see big health improvements in, in the developed world while in in lower and middle income countries they're still going to be seeing terribly high and avoidable rates of smoking related death and disease because you know the cigarette is the unchallenged king there so um I, I'm sure that's a, a topic that we'll be touching on. Uh, in, in that session.
0: Well, often we talk about uh, the there's a litany of kind of issues. You've got cost, you've got availability. And I think you put it perfectly as the three A's appropriate, accessible, and affordable.
1: Sure. A lot of people I think have been put off trying vapes by the initial outlay. Um, and particularly at one time, you know, you could easily have spent 35, 40 pounds on buying a starter kit. Well, if, you know, at that time, a packet of cigarettes was £10, you're probably going to stick with spending the £10 for something you know works for you, that you like, rather than perhaps spend £40 on something that might might not work for you um, and and you won't like. And and I think, you know, that's a a very real problem here. Um, I think, you know... The acceptability, there's there's a big cultural issue there, what people are used to and what people see being used around them. Um, I think we've now, you know, probably got to um, a critical mass where there are enough people vaping that it probably does encourage some people to give it a go, you know, because, you know, if it works for them, it might be worthwhile for me. Um, There is some evidence that a lot of people struggled with nicotine uh, pouches, um, because there wasn't really any um, sort of culture about how to use them. People would put another one in and another one in, which is not the way to obviously get, get the most benefit out of using them. Um, so th- th- there are there are a lot of factors there. Um, you know, of course, something which will definitely come up in that session is you know, in a lot of places you've got political barriers. You know, things are made illegal. Um, which, you know, it, it's very simplistic, but it, to me it always it, it's a tragedy for safer nicotine products made illegal, but everywhere you can buy cigarettes. And, you know, that's, that's something we really do need to keep challenging people on about, you know, this makes no sense.
0: Whether you're in a lower or middle-income country or you're on the streets in London right? It's much easier with a stick and a lighter than it is with a tank and a charger, a bottle of liquid and all of that complicated stuff.
1: Absolutely. Um, You know, if if you are, you don't even need to be sleeping on the streets, you know, if you've got sort of insecure housing all the kit and gizmos that I know lots of our vaping colleagues like, but you know, that's just not going to work for you. You're not going to be able to say, well, I think I'll take this mod out today or, you know, I'll try that juice tomorrow. You're not in that world. Um, So, yeah, there are some very practical challenges there. And and I think for a a group, which is often overlooked, I think, is the older smoker. You know, some of them aren't particularly keen on new technology. Um, And as I get older, I also start to understand more about the issues of hands not being quite as nimble and uh, subtle as they once were supple as they once were. So, you know, I think fiddling around, putting in juice, it's it's not, it's not going to work for everyone. Um, But of course there are, there are some, some products are much simpler to use uh, and, you know, have proved quite successful with these groups.
0: Are you speaking of the controversial disposables?
1: Well, certainly disposables have some things going for them for some populations um they're a lot cheaper you know you know if you, you can buy a disposable for four pounds that's you know it's a lot cheaper than buying a packet of cigarettes you know people might might be more inclined to uh, give it a go and I'm sure for some people that would work and would be you know potentially a, a life changing event um so there are and and for other populations i mean um you know we've seen in rough sleeping accommodation the use of not just disposables but other quite simple bits of kit i'll mention jewel have worked quite well you know they're, they're, they're simple to use they're not particularly fiddly um that's a great attraction for a lot of people in, in a lot of settings.
0: So would you classify disposables as a boon for reaching this population?
1: I think they can be. Yes. I mean, they, they clearly have advantages for some populations, Um but there are some genuine and understandable concerns around littering. Um uh, And, I I can understand some of the concerns that are raised around disposables, but it's nothing. What's the expression? We shouldn't chuck the baby out with the bathwater. There there are, you know, there's a lot we could do to improve um, recycling. um, And, you know, concern about disposables being bought by people under the age of 18 here. You know, they shouldn't be. So there there is, you know, the scope there to improve the regulation and the monitoring of that. But clearly, for some people, disposables are a great way to switch from smoking.
0: Let me ask you about priorities. Should tobacco harm reduction even be considered as a priority when drug harm reduction seems more immediately important? As you mentioned earlier, trying to get somebody off of heroin, you know, if they're smoking, why bug and nag them about smoking?
1: Opiates don't kill 50% of the people who use them. Um, Smoking is going to kill 50% or more of the people who smoke. If we look amongst um, people who have been in contact with drug treatment, they have tremendously high rates of things like chronic chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. You know, this is what kills a lot of them. That's because of their smoking and, you know general poor lifestyle, but there's something we can do about the smoking element of that. And, and you know, we can do it. And that that could can, that can be smoking cessation or switching. But when you start looking at these populations, you know, um, life expectancy for a rough sleeper in London is around 45 years of age. Now, a lot of, you know, that premature death is driven partly by their smoking. So it should be a priority. It's not about saying the smoking, you know, tobacco harm reduction is a bigger priority than the drugs harm reduction or of trying to get them into somewhere safe to spend the night or looking at prisons, you know, trying to stop someone reoffend on release. But it is a really important part of what we should and can do to help improve that individual's outcomes and, and community outcomes as well. You know, vaping and some of the other safer products are a very powerful additional part of the arsenal. You know, they give, you know, it, it's, it's it's something else that people can try, something else people can feel, that you know, it's worth giving it a go. And you're right, for people who have got a particular, you know, strong desire to carry on using nicotine well hey you can carry on using nicotine but your health is still going to be dramatically improved
0: you mentioned earlier in the interview uh briefly that there has been some good positive response uh from some of the clients in the programs that you've worked on share that more detail like what exactly um happened um say in the in the east side of london and what was the response from uh the client
1: I think, I mean, to be fair, a lot of the clients were probably quite sceptical themselves. You know, they've they they they've probably typically had several attempts at giving up. They've got a lot else going on in their life. They're going to be focused on trying to um, overcome their drug or alcohol problem. Um, and there was a couple of strands to the work. You know, there was the sort of classic bit and this had a, had an impact as well, try to get people to realise and see the benefits economically, you know, so put the money to one side. And I think sometimes that works particularly well with some of these groups because these are people who really do understand the value of a £10 note, you know. If they saved 10 or £20 pounds over the course of the week, that's a big deal. That You know, that, that's maybe a treat for them, a family treat. I think for a lot of them, it was how they felt better in their lives, and you know, I think I mentioned, you know, my clothes don't smell, where I live doesn't smell, and you know, they're they're very powerful. My my kids say, you know, I smell better, the flat smells better, you know, these are huge, huge um, factors when people are trying to improve their lives, and one of the I think great things about this is it's quite quick. You know, it's it's not sort of saying, well, let's see where you are in six months, 12 months, 18 months. You know, this is demonstrable progress in very real time. And I, I think that's what gave me people had a real sense of agency and pride. You know, I've done this. I'm feeling much better. And <laughs> from um, uh, the agency's point of view, It also helped us because I was very used to walking up to the front of the service and you'd see quite a lot of our clients sitting on the wall outside smoking. And there was a visible reduction in that. Um, And that used to be one of the bugbears with some of the people who lived, you know, our neighbours, the residents who lived in that area. So they they were very pleased as well. But, you know, it it was that pride. And I've done this. Um, It's um, in some ways very hard to calculate the value of it but it's certainly very valuable.
0: Well, and it's something that as you said was is quick, it can be quick. So that's a for somebody who's probably not felt that kind of an accomplishment before when it comes to kind of mastering their will when it comes to using a substance like that, that's got to have positive impact in the other areas that they're fighting.
1: I'm I'm sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Oh, you know, but these were people, are people who are quite motivated, you know, they're engaging with treatment, you know, and they are keen, but uh, you know, it was a a great success. Uh, I I went from being skeptical. uh, I was delighted to be proved wrong quite quickly.
0: David, I want to return back to disposables for a second, because I know there's more to that story around the positive impact that disposables may have had Four clients during COVID. Tell us about that.
1: Right, so I was um, involved uh, in a very small way uh, with the response to getting our rough sleepers indoors, it was called Everybody In, uh, at the start of the COVID epidemic in, in London. Now, it was quite a remarkable time actually, because in the space of a very few short weeks, there's something like 1,400 people were taken off the streets of London and found secure, safe accommodation, I shouldn't say secure, not prison, safe accommodation within hotels. Um, now, a lot of these people had drug issues, alcohol issues. As we've already said, majority of them smoked. There's a pandemic. We don't want people mixing. We don't want people going out on the street to smoke. What are we going to do? um other things were put in place to deal with people's drug issues um, and the alcohol issues and smoking suddenly we had this well what can we do well let's see what products we can get hold of um and yeah um things like Juul worked very well um you know People did give them a go. There was some training for the staff working in the hotels. Um, There was some people who were going in to work with um, the residents who'd explain how to use things. And I think we were all quite pleasantly surprised at the uptake, the positive response. I mean, you know, people knew it was going to be very difficult to smoke They risk getting thrown out of the accommodation if they smoked. So actually, uh, in a way, um, the provision of those products did help make that scheme a success. Um, There was a lot of harm reduction across a range of uh, issues done very quickly, but there was some great clinical support. Um, Some people probably deserve medals for the work they did. And you know, some people were really surprised. I mean, you know, I, I was involved in a small way say with some of the commissioning and people going, this is going to be a disaster. You know, we're going to, there were some problems. Some people did still get thrown out for smoking, but for the vast majority of people, it worked very well, actually.
0: To me, I think that says something about just the power of safer nicotine products to replace tobacco when you can take a vulnerable population that does you know their use is a bit rough (laughs) you know
1: sure sure Um, i mean you know a a lot of these people you know would have been smoking cigarette butts left by other people i mean that was that that population um i think there's there's a whole heap of, of learning um I think it probably worked better because people were in, by and large, quite nice accommodation compared to what they were used to. And I'm sure that that helped. And I say, there was a whole suite of support available. Um, But, you know, the fact is it worked very, very well. And we had far less problems than we were expecting. Did
0: the uh, anti-vaping campaigners get their, you know, knickers in a knot over that?
1: I think because it was sort of an emergency situation um, and it all happened so quickly. I mean, it was, you know, it was a a very demanding, very rapid period of work that there there really wasn't much opposition to it. And, you know, I I think it's very difficult to insist, well, all these people who've been smoking for, you know, you know, a very... Worst, heaviest smokers will just tell them to stop. It's you know, I I, I don't think there's actually that many people who would have thought that there was a lot of um, alternatives. To be honest, um, it, it I, I'm I'm sure afterwards there's a lot of people who shouldn't have done that, but I I think it was a, you know it, it wasn't a planned exp- experiment at all, but I I think it actually has had some positive um effects in that lots of the agencies who work with these populations have seen it oh well, actually that does work these people will switch if we can support them or some of them will switch if we if we can support them um I'm quite in, in quite a short period of time really you know some of this work has become quite mainstream with the agencies that work with homeless people.
0: David, as mentioned, you will be hosting a panel titled Inequality of Access. How do we achieve a level playing field at the Global Forum on Nicotine? The annual conference on safer nicotine products and tobacco harm reduction. GFN 2023 starts on June 21st and runs to the 24th. If you can't attend, you can watch online. Please go to gfn.events to register. David, final question for you. Let me ask you, why is an event like GFN important?
1: I had the opportunity to first go to GFN before I'd really got properly involved in tobacco harm reduction to an extent, but I I wanted to find out a little bit more and I was incredibly naive about um, a lot of the um, kit and, and products that were available. And I think one of the things that first struck me and stays with me about GFN is the energy. It, it's, it's not just a conference. It's almost, there's, there's a slight hint of a festival about it. Um, in that you know, um, there's a lot of people sharing information. There's a, a lot of positivity despite the challenges. And I have no doubt this year people will, you know, be covering again some of the obstacles that we face in trying to deliver uh, tobacco harm reduction. But, you know, and it, it, it's the range of information that you can get at GFM you know for someone like me who hasn't got a science background you know it's always interesting to hear the scientists i'm very much looking forward to the session on the potential therapeutic uses of nicotine in connection with brain disorders uh, it's obviously a a huge huge issue uh particularly where we've got an aging population but gfn's very good uh, i think addressing the major issues and actually helping people to come together to help um, overcome them. So yeah, part conference, part festival.